Good morning. It is a pleasure to gather with you this morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Romans. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and much more enjoyable if you follow along with me in a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible with you, you can find one underneath the seat in front of you or near you. The book of Romans begins uh, around page 942, but Romans 5 is specifically on page 942. And if you're not very familiar with the Bible, the large numbers are chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are verse numbers. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment Romans chapter 5, verse 1. If you are the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, I'd like you to circle or underline every time you see the word more as we read through Romans 5. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here with us today. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are learning from today. We ask, Father, that you would help us to focus, focus our minds on your truth, to focus our attention on your word, to not be distracted in this time together. We pray, Father, that you would write these eternal life truths on our hearts, and we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. My grandmother was an amazing cook. 
She was Polish. My grandfather was Czechoslovakian, and that means I can't spell any of the wonderful things that she made. But I can pronounce them, and I could eat them. That's a spiritual gift that I have. Gawunkis, Shaplushka, pierogies, and she could make all manners of delights. But she was also strict and very precise. She had lived through World War II as an immigrant's child and lost her husband to tragedy and had lots of children and grandchildren. So there was always a specific and precise amount of what she'd be giving to us to ensure that she had enough. And we were instructed not to ask for more. In a system of such exactitude, it was unthinkable that more could be asked for, much less given. But in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that more is given to us in the gospel. More is given to us in the gospel than the forgiveness of sins. Easter changes everything. And because of that, we receive more than the forgiveness of sins. As he expounds on how the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday shape our thinking and subsequently our living. The whole paragraph, though, of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, depends on the opening words. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, having explained our need to be declared righteous before God, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, and the way that we are declared righteous before God, chapter 3, verse 21, to chapter 4, verse 25, the apostle now describes the benefits of being declared righteous before God. And in so doing, he actually enlarges for us, chapter 4, verse 6, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works by giving us six benefits if we have been declared righteous before God. Notice first, we have peace with God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The pursuit of peace is a uh, universal human obsession. Whether it's international peace, or domestic peace, or relational peace, or political peace, or personal peace. Yet Paul knows more fundamental than all of these is, verse 1, peace with God. The great gospel blessing, according to the Apostle Paul, is not the forgiveness of sins. The first blessing of justification, of being declared righteous before God, the apostle tells us, is a reconciled relationship. We have, verse 1, peace with God. The wonder of justification, the wonder of the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday for all who have gathered here this morning is that at the very same moment that we are declared righteous before God, God gives us friendship with himself and establishes Peace between himself and us. Our sins, friends, must be forgiven by Jesus' sin-bearing death on the cross. There is no way for you to have fellowship with God other than for your sins to be forgiven by Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. But the only one who is, only the one who is truly God and truly man was able to reconcile God and man by this sin-bearing death and this death-defying resurrection from the grave. So this peace, the apostle tells us, becomes ours. It is our present possession now, verse 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who was both delivered to death on Good Friday and raised from death on Easter Sunday in order to make all of this possible. Just look up a few verses with me in chapter 4, verse 24. And see how the, Paul, the apostle is bringing all of this together for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, we have peace with God. And brothers and sisters, that peace is ours right now. It's not a future blessing. It is a present reality because of what Jesus did for us and for our salvation. You can have peace with God now. We have peace with God. Notice second, we have access to grace. Look at verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We think of grace normally as God's free, unmerited favor, his undeserved, unsolicited, and unconditional love. And it is. 
It is free. You have done nothing for it. It is unconditional. But here in Romans 5, it is not so much about the quality of his graciousness, free, unmerited, undeserved, as it is the sphere of his grace, our privileged position in Christ. So Paul says, verse 2, through Christ we have obtained or gained access to this grace. But this is a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God. It's far greater than even an occasional audience with the king. It's much more intimate than the high priest annually going into the Holy of Holies for those who have been declared righteous before God. In Christ, we stand in grace. In Christ, we are privileged to live in the temple. In Christ, we are welcomed in the palace. Our union with Christ, into which justification has brought us, is not something that's sporadic, but continuous. It's not something that's precarious, but it is secure and constant. We don't have to wonder if we have access to God. In Christ, we have access to God. We dare to pray to the living God because we have access to the living God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We do not fall in and out of grace like some politicians who might find themselves in favor or out of favor depending on who's in the White House. Or like some players in Philadelphia who find themselves to be pitching well or not pitching well. No, according to the Apostle Paul, verse 2, we stand in grace. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Friends, the great gospel blessing that we have sung about and read about and are studying about right now is not merely the forgiveness of sins. It is unrestricted access into this grace in which we stand. So Paul tells us, God isn't just gracious to us in Christ. He is gracious to us in Christ. But here we stand in grace because of Christ. We have peace with God. We have access to grace. Notice third, we have hope. Look at verse two. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Christian hope is not uncertain like our ordinary everyday hopes about the weather or health or the masters. We hope that Tiger will somehow turn it around and come out on top. We hope for a good prognosis after an appointment that we really didn't want to make anyways. We hope for warmer or cooler weather than we had at the courthouse steps this morning. But Christian hope is not like that. Christian hope is a joyful and confident expectation which rests on the promises of God as Abraham did. Look up again into chapter 4 with me, but this time look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Believer, are you fully convinced of the promises of God that are yours in Christ? Paul tells us that the Christian lives from the future into the present because he or she believes in the promises of God. Tim Keller once told a story illustrating this type of hope when he asked his congregation to imagine that there were two women. Two women of identical age, identical in socioeconomic status, identical in education level, identical in temperament. They were both hired to be part of a tedious assembly line, doing the exact same repetitive work that was both repetitive and boring. They were to do this work over and over again for eight hours a day, every day. They were placed in identical rooms, same rooms with the same type of lighting, the same temperature, and the same ventilation. They had the same number of breaks every day at the exact same time. 
Their circumstances were identical in absolutely every way except for one difference. One woman had been told at the end of the year that she would be paid $30,000. And one woman had been told that at the end of the year she would be paid $30 million. After a few weeks, one woman is going crazy and wants to quit. And the other is working joyfully. What made the difference? Their expectation of the future. Friends, we who believe in Christ about our future and what we believe about our future in him completely controls how we experience the present. In Christ, hope is not merely the means to a better future. Rather, in Christ, hope invades the presence with joy and faith because we are fully convinced that God is able to do everything that he has promised to us in Christ. And the object of our hope, chapter 5, verse 2, is the glory of God. Though God has uniquely manifested his glory in the death of the Son of God, Good Friday, and the resurrection of the Son of God, Easter Sunday, a day is coming when his glory will be fully disclosed with Jesus Christ appears with great power and glory. And on that day, all of God's splendor and majesty and might will be displayed for absolutely everyone to see. And we who have been declared righteous by faith in Christ will actually be changed into that glory from one degree to another. Friends, the great gospel blessing the Apostle Paul tells us is more than the forgiveness of sins. It is the marvelous truth that God and man are to share in the same end, the same goal. And because of that, our chief end is to glorify God and to live in a confident hope of enjoying him forever. Our vision of the future, our vision of future glory in Christ, Paul tells us, is actually a powerful stimulus for our present thinking and our present living. Believer, are you here? Is your vision bleak? You go through most of your days with no hope for tomorrow. And you live most of this life with no hope for what's ahead. The Apostle Paul would tell you you're not looking out far enough. You want a brighter vision? Look farther. Look to the end, to all that is promised us in Christ Remember, believer, that God does everything for his own glory. That is the resounding note of the scriptures. He does everything for the praise of his glory, to the praise of his name, to his glory. And amazingly, he has recreated you in Christ Jesus to share in that glory. So far, the benefits of being declared righteous before God relate to the past, the present, and the future for the Apostle Paul. We have peace with God as a result of our past forgiveness. We are standing in grace. That is our present privilege. We rejoice in hope in the glory of God, our future inheritance. And it all sounds idyllic, doesn't it? Peace, grace, hope, glory, Easter Sunday. And it all is great, except it isn't. And the Apostle Paul knows it. We have peace with God. We have access to grace. We have hope. Notice fourth, we have joy in our suffering. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is not so unfeeling as we might think. But he is absolutely realistic about the world that we live in. And yet he tells us that nothing is wasted in God's economy. Not even our suffering. The pressures and the opposition that we experience as believers living in a world hostile to God. A spouse who abandons us or stonewalls us because of our faith in Christ. Children who rebel against us because they don't agree with our faith in Christ. 
friends, colleagues, co-workers, neighbors who alienate us or don't want to have fellowship with us because of our faith in Christ. Being belittled and mocked is bigoted because of our faith in Christ. So the apostle says, we can be joyfully confident in suffering because suffering actually strengthens our hope. It releases our detachment to this world and it makes us look farther out for something greater. It breaks the chains that hold us to the present and poises us to look into the future. It deepens our conviction of the reality of the hope that we have in Christ. So he says, verse 3, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Through friction and affliction, God polishes us and transforms us and chisels and molds us into the type of person who would have character to reflect our Savior, Jesus Christ, with whom we are united by faith. But what attitude are we to adopt during our suffering? Far from merely enduring it with stoic fortitude or scrunching up your face and feeling sorry for yourself. Verse 3, the Apostle Paul says that we should rejoice in our sufferings. The Apostle Paul is not some sort of masochist, but he is recognizing a divine rationale between, behind all of our suffering. Suffering is the only path to glory. It was so for Jesus Christ. Crucifixion pain preceded resurrection glory. And it is so for all of his children. The sufferings of this life will not compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. Which is why, according to the apostle, suffering can be productive if we respond to it positively and not with anger or bitterness or resentment or frustration with God or our fellow church members or our neighbors thinking that somehow God has given us a bad deck of cards. Friends, the beauty, though difficult, of our suffering is that nothing happens to you in your life apart from God's divine, providential plan for your life. Not one hair of your head falls without the Lord ordaining everything that takes place. That is just as true for us in the 21st century as it was for these Christians in the first century and has been for believers in every century. We learn, verse 3, endurance through suffering. For without suffering, there would be nothing to endure. And the character of those who endure, the apostle tells us, verse 4, is as the temperament of a veteran in contrast to the raw recruit, the person who knows how to respond in conflict and during battle, rather than the person who's never been in conflict and never been in battle. And a mature character, that verse 4, is hopeful in suffering because suffering, the apostle tells us, verse 5, is the best context in which we can become assured of God's love. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. I love that image. It is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. No doubt that there are many people who will immediately assert the contrary since suffering is the very thing that makes them doubt God's love. Perhaps you're here this morning and that's you. The hardships that you face and the sufferings of this life make you think that God does not love you. Friend, as a pastor, I grieve with you for that. And I wish that I could take it from you. But much like my children, there are many sufferings that I just cannot take. There are things that they have to endure, that they have to go through in this life. And yet the apostle tells us that our suffering produces something in us. Consider his argument for just a moment. He's traced a sequence of chain reactions for us here in the text. From tribulation to perseverance. From perseverance to a type of character. From a type of character to a future hope. And now he adds, hope does not put us to shame. And friends, it will never put us to shame. It will never betray us by proving to be an illusion after all. 
You will not get to the end of this life and be able to see that somehow all this belief in Christ was for nothing. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is no fantasy. We hope in certain realities. We are confident that Jesus died for us. We are confident that Jesus rose from the dead. We are confident that Jesus will come again. And we are confident that he will bring us safely home to him in glory. We hope on realities that are more sure than the ground underneath your feet. And how do we know all of this? What is the ultimate ground on which our Christian hope rests What is our hope of glory? Paul tells us it is the steadfast love of God. The reason our hope will never let us down, and it will never let you down, it will never let you down, is that God will never let us down. He will always keep his promises. He will keep all of his promises. His love will never give us up. He will never let go of us, not even in our suffering. And God's objective way of showing us that is that his love is, verse 5, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us precisely when we're prone to disbelieve it while we're suffering. And more than that, he has proved his love for us by Christ's death on the cross for us as our substitute. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, not a moment too soon, not a moment late, at the exact right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still lost, Still revolting, still rebelling, still turning, still rejecting, still hating, still committing Christ-diminishing sins. Christ died for us. On Good Friday, we saw that the cross was a demonstration of God's justice. And it is certainly a demonstration of God's justice. God will judge sin. And he has judged it for the believer on the cross of Christ. But now on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection, the apostle says that the cross is a demonstration of God's love. The son of God loved me and he gave himself up for me. The cross proves God's love for us because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And that, my friends, is God's proof of his love for you. Or as John Stott so eloquently said, the degree of that love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the beneficiary. The more the gift cost the giver and the less the recipient deserves the gift, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love is absolutely unique for in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything his very self, to those who deserved nothing except judgment. We are sinners, verse 8. We have departed from the way of righteousness and fall short of God's standards. But at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, verse 6. And it is not simply that we fall short of God's standards. It's worse than that, the apostle tells us. We are ungodly. We rebel against God with all of our being, every fiber in our being. Apart from Christ, we are, verse 10, enemies of God, hostile to God, rejecting God and resisting God's authority, telling God, you cannot command me to do what I don't want to do. Enemies who are, verse 6, helpless. Absolutely helpless. Unable to do anything for ourselves, and yet, verse 6 and verse 8, Christ died for us. Friends, the good news of Easter morning is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die as our substitute for us and for our salvation. To die for people whom he had made in his image. This morning, in our house, my son woke up and for some reason decided to write out all the things that he just wanted to hang on the fridge. And one of the things that he wrote out was, 
I'm thankful that I'm made in God's image. And he called me over, and in those moments, I often don't want to go over, but he said, Dad, I want to show you something. And I, I walked over, and he said, look at that. I'm thankful I'm made in God's image. Friends, you're made in God's image, just like my son. You're made in God's image, and you have rebelled against God. You have turned your back on him, and you have persisted in your sin because you love your sin more than you love the God who made you in his image. And you need to be saved as a result of your sin that has severed your ability to have a relationship with God, completely separating you from access to him. Saved from the wrath that God will pour out. As he pours his Holy Spirit into our hearts, he will pour out his wrath on judgment day for all who have sinned. He will pour it out and it will be fierce. The one is beautiful, encouraging our hearts, helping us look forward, and the other is terrible and it will never end. It will be unceasing torment and judgment for wrath because of your sin. But friend, you are in a good place this morning. The Bible tells us that if you repent, turn away from your sins, if you believe in what Christ did on the cross, that he died as your substitute, and if you believe in his death-defying resurrection from the grave, if you come to Christ, you can be born again and know all of the goodness and mercy of God that is available to everyone in Christ. Friends, come to Christ. Unbeliever here this morning, trust in Christ do not wait a moment longer. Do not wait another day. Do not leave this building. I'll be standing at that door following the service. I would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Pastor Renee, who's presiding through the service, would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. One of our other elders, Will Hall, is down here. He'd love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Terry Krause, we'd love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. But frankly, friends, so many of the people in here are members of this church. And one of the things that they have to do to become a member of this church is explain the gospel. They would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Find one of them and come to Christ. The unique majesty of God's love lies in the combination of these realities. When Christ died for us, he was giving himself even to the horrors of a sin-bearing death on the cross and doing so for his undeserving enemies. How then, believer, can you doubt the love of God even when you're suffering? I'm reading Samuel Rutherford's The Loveliness of Christ, as many of you know from all of the text I keep sending out to everyone. May his words encourage you today, especially if you're suffering. What God layeth on, let us suffer. For some have one cross, some seven, some ten, some half a cross. Yet all of the saints have whole and full joy, and seven crosses have seven joys. The weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lieth upon your strong Savior, Jesus Christ. The floods may swell and roar, but our ark shall swim above the waters. It cannot sink because our Savior is in the boat. We have peace with God. We have access to grace. We have hope. We have joy in our suffering. Notice fifth, we have assurance of being absolutely safe on judgment day. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So far the apostle has concentrated on the benefits of what God has done for us through Christ. We've been declared righteous before God. We have peace with God. We're standing in grace. We have joy in our suffering. And yet there is still more than that. There's more, much more for the Apostle Paul. In verses 9 and 10, he helps us see the much more that is ours in Christ between what Christ has already accomplished for us at his first coming and what remains to be done when he comes again between our past and our future salvation in Christ because he knows that though we have been saved through Christ from guilt, from our sins, from the judgment that is coming upon them, we have not yet been delivered from indwelling sin. We're given new bodies in a new world. So the Apostle Paul tells us, the best is yet to come. Believer, the best is yet to come. And on that day, we will be saved from the wrath of God. We will be saved by his life. Here again is his logic. If God has already done this incredibly difficult thing, can we not trust him to do this comparatively simple thing of completing the task? 
If God has accomplished our justification, our declared righteousness before God in Christ on the cross, at the, cro- at the cost of His Son, much more will we be saved and justified when He comes again. Because we're justified, we will be saved on that day. We will be fully and finally free from all of our sins. Believer who is struggling in here, your sin does not have the last word for your life, and it does not define you in Christ. Your sin does not define you in Christ. Your sin is terrible, and your sin must be repented of. But what defines you is your relationship to Christ. Friends, the great gospel blessing goes beyond the forgiveness of sins because if God did all of this to secure our declared righteousness before him, we can be sure that he will bring us safely home no matter what we wrestle with this side of eternity, no matter how disappointing this life is, no matter how many sorrows we face, no matter how many sins we have to put to death, no matter how many times we have to repent, no matter even if we have to be put under the discipline of the church, we can be sure that he will bring us safely home to glory. Friends, we have peace with God. We have access to grace. We have hope. We have joy in our suffering. We have assurance of being absolutely safe on judgment day. And notice sixth, we have reconciliation. Verse 11. More than that. Careful readers at this point will just be astonished. I mean, how, how can there be more? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. On top of all of that, more than that, the benefit that is ours is that we have fellowship with God himself. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater benefit than enjoying God. There is Absolutely no benefit greater than knowing and enjoying God in Christ. That is what Good Friday is about. That is what Easter Sunday is about. Not merely the forgiveness of sins, but enjoying God in a reconciled relationship through Jesus Christ. Friends, do you enjoy God? Perhaps you do not enjoy God because you have not considered how rich are his benefits to you. You have reduced them to simply the forgiveness of your sins. But God has given you so much more in Christ that you would know him and enjoy him and bask in relationship with him. And what is to be our response? Worship. I want to see if you noticed it throughout the passage. Look in verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our response to all of the benefits that are ours in Christ is worship. The natural response of the believer is to worship, is to sing, is to pray, is to praise, is to give, is to proclaim, to declare the goodness, the mercy, the unrestricted access that we have in Christ to let everyone know of the glory of Jesus Christ, a response that teaches us that a major characteristic of the justified person is joy. Joy in God. Joy in God in suffering. Joy in God because we are in Christ. Joy, extremely happy, full of joy. That does not mean we like all of our circumstances. That does not mean terrible things have not happened to you. That does not mean that life will not be hard. Our joy is much deeper than that. Something that we are assured of and secure And our exaltation stems from the shame-faced reality that we have no claim on Jesus Christ at all. We should be so utterly dumbstruck by the fact that we have the privilege to be able to gather together this morning and worship God. Believer, do you consider it a privilege to worship God with other believers? Or is coming on Sunday simply a drudgery to you? Do you consider it a privilege That you have a Bible that tells you what God wants you to know. It reveals his truth to you. Do you simply begrudge the fact that we exhort you to read it? 
Do you consider it an absolute honor and privilege that you have the ability to pray to God Almighty? Or do you run out of time because there's just never enough and you got other stuff to do? Friends, the response of the believer to all of the benefits is worship, giving. Was your giving a little while ago begrudging? Generous or reluctant? There's never really enough to go around. Friends, Paul tells us that so much has been given to us in Christ. So we have joy in everything. We should be utterly dumbstruck that Christ died for us and that should give us confidence that he will complete the work and he will. The great gospel blessing is not merely the forgiveness of sins. It is so much more. It is the forgiveness of sins and so much more, which is what makes the message of Good Friday and Easter Sunday and the gospel the good news. It is such good news because it is far more than all we could imagine or think or comprehend. It is absolutely more than anything we could fathom in this life. So friends, treasure the gospel. Work hard, believers, at treasuring the gospel in your life, treasuring the gospel, learning the gospel, reminding yourself of the gospel, and stop separating Christ from all of his benefits for you. Christ and his benefits for you are a complete package, the apostle tells us, and believer, know know this, that it is finished. You see, I think one of the, the things that we do that causes us to separate Christ from his benefits is that we somehow fall into this rut that we have to maintain our forgiveness with God. Because that's how all of our other relationships work. I want to be close to Maxwell, so I need to maintain a relationship with him. I I need to, to be a certain way around him. But friends, our relationship with God is not like that. God loved us when we were enemies. He loved us when we did not deserve it. God loves us when we sin. God loves us when we suffer. God loves us to the end. God loves us enough to see us through death itself. God loves us enough to raise us from death. And God loves us enough to seat us with him in glory. God loves us so much, so stop trying to maintain it all. Did you begin by grace? But now you are fretting about in this Christian life, trying to maintain favor with God. You will wear yourself out. And you will crush all of your joy because you just can't do it. And if you're honest, if you've been a believer for more than about five minutes, you know that. That you just can't do it. There's never enough, which is why we all say, well, I haven't read my Bible enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't given enough. I haven't done enough. Share the gospel enough. And you'll never be able to do enough. So stop trying and rest in his benefits and allow those benefits to motivate you to do more. The benefits actually become the catalyst that slingshots you into the obedience that you long for in your life. And nothing helps us visualize the cost of these benefits more, more than gathering around this table this morning. Friends, when we gather around this table, we're not just simply doing something that we're supposed to do once a month in the life of our church. When we gather around this table, we are made one with Christ, union with Christ, and Christ with us. But we are also made one with another. God has not saved a room full of individuals. God has saved a people, and he has made them members one of another. Having all of this in mind as we approach the table and consider his great love for us and all of his benefits to us, we render to him never-ending thanks. We give him praise for his continual providence over us in our lives. We declare his mercy for his love for us and for all who have believed in him. We thank him for his redemption that came to us at great cost to himself. His body was broken, his blood was shed, and we humble ourselves because we know that we do not deserve a place at the table. I wonder if you've ever been with a group of people where you knew that you did not belong there. Not long ago, I was with a friend, and he invited me to come meet with him downtown. And he said, hey, come to this club, the Philadelphia Club. I don't know what the Philadelphia Club is, and I walk into this club, and It's an exclusive club, and it's very beautiful and opulent, and he's just talking to me about the night that the royals were there, and and I'm just thinking, I'm just a small church pastor. I don't belong here. 
in a small way that reminds us of this table. The beauty of this table is that you do not belong here. You should have no access to this table today. You do not deserve to be able to worship with the people of God and to be reminded of the benefits of Christ's salvation towards us. And yet, God has loved us so much. He has loved us so much that he would send his son to be broken for us and his blood to be spilled for us so that we could come to this table as a family and be reminded that God has made us a part of something much bigger than ourselves, much bigger than our own individual life, so big, in fact, that we get to be a part of this family and the family of God, one holy Catholic, universal, and apostolic church. We get to be a part of something big and eternal, and we get to be a part of it forever. So friends, as we come to this table, we come and we celebrate with these holy mysteries. We have to remember the dignity of everything that Christ did for us. And I call us to prepare ourselves by remembering what the Apostle Paul said. Hear the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Not something the Apostle says lightly. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with this world. Believer, God puts you in services like this and churches like this to discipline you, to work the sin out of your life, to mold you into his image. So even as we approach this table this morning, we need to be reminded that our sin is still present and still disrupting our fellowship with God. As the benefits are great, and they are great, so is the danger great, and it is great if we receive this table improperly and think that our sin is no big deal. God doesn't care, he doesn't see. Pastor Raymond doesn't know, and I'm never gonna tell him. Friends, do not trifle with God. If you're lying, cheating, perpetual drunk, in all of the manner of sins that the scripture lays out, do not trifle with your sin and come to this table as if it's no big deal. Examine your lives and the conduct of your lives by the rule of God's word. And then, where you have or become aware that you have offended God, repent. And when you become aware of how you've offended other people, repent. Acknowledge your sins before God. Acknowledge them before other people because your sin can be forgiven in Christ. You see, we don't go to God with our sin because we're ashamed of what other people think of our sin. But friends, if we understood rightly, we're not worried about what they think. We're worried about what God says about our sin. We are to take our sin to him and plead the mercy of Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But thankfully, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Repentance removes doubt. It gives us assurance. It strengthens our faith, and it helps us reconcile with one another. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Because if you're harboring unforgiveness, that means that you do not understand and have not paid attention to the forgiveness that you have received in Christ. Friends, to Christ our Lord who loves us and has washed us and has made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory forever. If you are here and if you have repented of your sins, 
and believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have been baptized, if you're a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, we invite you to come to this table and to celebrate with us this morning. But friend, if that is not you, if you're not a believer, if you are hiding habitual sin, if you are harboring it in your life and in your heart, the most godly thing that you can do is stay in your seat. No one will look down on you and no one will judge you. But believers struggling on the way, confessing your sin, trying to put it to death, wrestling with it, trying to throw off what so easily entangles, come afresh to the table and be reminded of the rich benefits that are yours in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There will be two lines. We're going to ask you to come down. You're going to break off a piece of the bread. You're going to take a cup, and then you're going to go to the outside and go back down and around and come to your seat. We're going to have a common loaf here, reminding us of the common fellowship that we have as believers, that we all come from the same body. We reach into the same plate and take a cup together, reminding us that this blood was shed for us. And if you don't feel comfortable breaking off from that common loaf or taking from that, we have a few other options available to you this morning. We would love for you to come and be able to take one of those communion kits, one of those options where you can't take the bread and you can be able to take that wafer and to be able to observe the Lord's Supper with us. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I'm going to ask the elders to come and to be ready to serve the table. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy towards us in Christ. The benefits are great. The gospel benefits on Easter morning are sweet to us because they are great, they are immense, and they are ours in Christ, and they are free. We did nothing to earn them. We do nothing to keep them. So we ask that you would help us to be grateful for your great benefits to us as we observe this supper and as we sing these songs. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners who was substituted for us and raised for us that we might have peace with God. And we ask all of this in his great name. Amen.